0: we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word and for all that are going to hear this we ask that you bless it we ask you to bring people and put it on their hearts to come to tomorrow night at the candlelight service so that we can give the gospel message that night and many will hear and we thank you for that and we thank you for your leading in this study in jesus name amen Habakkuk chapter three so up to this point we've had Habakkuk complaining to god god answering him uh, on two separate occasions and now we have a prayer or a song of Habakkuk uh, as he now comes to praise God. So Habakkuk 3 verse 1 A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon the Shiggi Omanoth. O Lord I have heard your speech and I, and was afraid O Lord. Revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years made known the wrath remember and in wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timan, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praises. And his brightness was as the light. And he had horns coming out of his hand. And there was a hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth and he beheld and drove asunder the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered and the perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction and the curtains in the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the seas that you did ride upon them? upon your horses and your chariots of salvation. The bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes, even your word, Selah, you did cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and they trembled and and the overflowing water passed by the deep. Passed by the deep, uttered his voice and lifted up his hands in on high. I'm going to stop there. So here we have a prayer of Habakkuk and it says upon the Shigunath and nobody really knows what that is. So we believe it's some kind of instrument. So it's we basically we believe that he's creating a psalm to be be able to be sung. Uh, and, and it's being called a prayer. And it says, O Lord I have heard your speech and was afraid. And so here we're seeing Habakkuk, he's been complaining to God and God answered. And the answers when he said, I heard your speech, your words, and I was afraid or in awe. He heard God's words. And I think on one side, he was saying, God, I've spoken too much and I'm afraid of your your answers. And sometimes we do that, we complain to God. And even when we're complaining, we think we shouldn't be complaining. And then we wonder, have we complained too much? Have we crossed over? And we sometimes get afraid of how God's going to react to our complaints. I mean, trust, to <laughs> and you know, he may not want to listen. We might, we might be afraid that he's going to judge us. You know, uh, and we also feel guilty because we're not showing faith. We're not showing trust in God when we're complaining to him when we know that all things work together for good. And yet we might be tempted to complain but God understands. And this is what he says You know, I've heard your speech and I was afraid. Revive your work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, make known, in wrath, remember mercy. So here we have him saying, God, bring forth what has, what has been. One of the complaints we see often in the scriptures where people will say, God, Where are your works? Why aren't you doing all the things that you used to do? And we kind of think the same way sometimes in our day. God, where is the God that opened the Red Sea? Where is the God that split the Jordan River? Where is the God that healed all all the lepers and the sick people? And this is the same thing that many times was, this was Gideon's complaint to God. Where is the God who did all the miracles that brought us into this promised land? And we see it over and over again that people said, God, where are you? Where is the miracle-working God? And this is what he's saying. Make known what has happened in the past. God, I'm looking to see you do great things. And remember, he is a prophet to an evil kingdom, an evil king. And he's saying, God, why aren't you showing us who you are? Well, mostly because they weren't following God. And God was not showing them who he was, who he could. But then he even goes on and says, In your anger, your wrath, remember mercy. He's saying, God, don't give us fully what we deserve. I know you're angry at us. We deserve it. But remember not to destroy us is basically what he's saying. And they're going to go into captivity. And it's going to be a terrible thing. They're going into captivity, but God says, but the prophet is saying, God, remember, and most of the people did go into captivity. They were taken out of the land. They were taken out of the land for 70 years, and then they were sent back, those who wanted to come back, and most of them did not want to come back at the end of 70 years. They were happy where they were at. They didn't want to go back to a, have to reestablish a nation. And, you know, we think about this it's not an easy thing to be told to go back. These guys had built new homes. They had built new businesses. They had seen Jerusalem totally torn down and most of the cities torn down. So what it was, if we want to put it in American terms, you're living on the coast with all the nice cities on the East Coast, and all of a sudden you're going out to the wilderness, the West. (laughs) No buildings, no homes, nothing but savage Indians and bad things going on. And it, not everybody wanted to go west. There were a handful of adventurous people and you know, people that had nothing going for them on the, on the civilized east. They were willing to go to the uncivilized. When they came back from, when they were told to go back, that was what they were looking at. We're going to go back to where it's uncivilized. There's no city built there. We're going to have to build houses. The, all those Gentiles are there that are going to want to go to war against us, and we're going to have all these problems, and that's how they looked at it. And I said, well, we're just happy. We'll just stay where we're at, except for a handful of adventurous souls. But this was the mercy that back at saying, God, don't destroy us. We deserve it, but don't destroy us. Remember your mercy toward us. And it's quite a prayer. This is my prayer with us in, in our country. God, we deserve punishment, but show mercy. Now, I don't necessarily mean that we're going to stay a nation and all that, but God, show mercy. Do not destroy everybody in the process. And this should be all of our prayers. When evil falls, when judgment falls on evil people, I don't get all excited about it. I'm really saddened by it. I know that it's needed. I know that God said it's going to happen, but it does not bring joy to me to watch People get what they deserve because it usually hurts not just them, but family and friends get hurt by what, by, by what their judgment is. And this is what is very hard to watch as somebody who just wants to see God minister to people. Now he starts going into this whole history of what God has done. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Peron, Selah. These are two regions. Uh, Timan is an area in the south of Judah near Edom, so it's toward the southeast of of Israel. And Paran is the area all around which they, most people believe that every one of the stops of the forty years of wilderness wilderness marching happened in per- Paran. Wow. It's uh, the northern por- portion of it is is blocked by Israel. The southern portion down by the Sinai, the east by Arabia, and to the west, a place called Ethan, which all of this area is where they believe. And it says, God, you have come from those places. And the word Selah is a word we don't fully translate, but most people believe that it is to pause, to pause, pause, a, a pause in your music. And many people add pause and consider. Think about what has been said. So he's saying in here, God, you have come from all these places where we wandered. And, you know, this is the thing I bring out when we are singing songs. I ask many times, you know, did you hear the words of the song? Did you really consider what you're singing? And so here he's saying, think about this. I've asked God for mercy and God has come out of these wilderness places where he led us. And so we see here, and he's reiterating the whole idea of God's mercy. He asked for God's mercy. Now he's reminding God about how merciful he has been in the past. And this is, happens all over the place where, where the prayers and the people remind God about who he has been in the past. And this is something we should maybe consider doing. It says, his glory covered the heavens and the earth was filled, was full of his praises his glory his splendor his brightness and it says was covered and again here we have the idea of con- concealed so God says his glory is concealed in the heavens God does not show man his complete glory because man cannot see the face of God God we cannot see God and his glory and still live. And then it says, and the earth shall be full of his praises. I love this. God wants praise. He desires praise from his people. Our job is to give him praise. And you know, the more we think about what God has done, the better off we're going to be because then we can bring pra- praises and glory to him. And this is. One of the things for us is how do we look at what's going on around us? Too many times we look around and we see what appears to be bad things happening and we get all bummed out, out of shape, because we're, not saying, we're thinking all of a sudden that God is not good. And God always has a good plan. Even when we can't see the plan, He has got a good plan. And we need to be able to lift up His praises. We're told in the Psalms, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, make a loud noise and rejoicing praises, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. You know, uh, Paul says in everything, give thanks for this is the will of uh, God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We need to be ready to give praises and glory and fill the earth. And I think this is even going even further that God indicates that the entire earth praises him. What did Jesus tell the people at the triumphant entry? The Pharisees were going, stop these people from making this statement that the the Messiah has come in, that he's riding in, and Jesus said to them, if they are silent, the rocks would cry out. I picture that there's a supernatural realm or, or something that we can't even hear where the very nature praises God. Because it's indicated all through Scripture that the nature praises God, and I don't think all of it's poetic in its call. And I don't know what it would sound like. Maybe it's something only God can hear. But we have this idea that he's saying the earth was full of his praises, and his brightness was as light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was, and there was the hiding of his power. I love this brightness, rays of splendor and light were emanating from all of this. And when we read the word horns, oftentimes the word horns is referring to dominion or authority. Okay, uh, in Daniel, we see the beast coming up with the three horns, the seven horns, and those are all dominions and kingdoms, authority. Uh, we see it again in Revelation when we see the word horn, it oftentimes means strength, And dominion. So he says his dominion, his strength was coming out of his hands. He had power. He, He has strength. He has rule. And they're the hiding of his power. Even in the hand that God was showing them, with all the power, his power was concealed. God does not show us as humans his complete power authority and glory. And why? Probably because we couldn't take it. Uh, It is very interesting, you know, if we ever came into the full glory of God, we'd probably die. But even if we come into a very partial glory of God, it would be overwhelming to us. We'd be like everybody else when they come into the presence of an angel or the angel of the Lord and they just fall fall down. They're overwhelmed by the power of God revealing being revealed to them. And he says, I'm my power is hidden in the hand. My glory is hidden through the cloud. And you know so all of this is this huge grouping of him saying, I have power. Then he goes into a little bit of history in verse 5. Before he went before him went the pestilence and the burning coals went forth from his feet. And it literally pestilences, plagues, and, and diseases. We believe, most people believe, that at this point he's talking about Egypt when God brought the ten plagues upon them. All right? And it may or may not be because God's brought plagues on them all through times, anytime he wants to. Uh, and he says, and burning coals, which literally would be sparks, went forth at his feet. This is indicating. God has great power, almost to the point of uh, when somebody walks with heavy shoes on, on flint or something, they can have sparks. Horses run and their hooves will cause sparks if it's a hard ground, a hard enough ground. Um, it's that picture of God being in a hurry. Things were happening and, the wor- and sparks were flying from his feet. Uh, you know, and this is kind of an interesting picture. It goes before him, this pestilence, and it's the idea of you don't get sparks by just walking. You get sparks by running. And so he's like, God, you're sending diseases before you, and you are running with great speed. You are doing uh, very fast work on all of this. And this is, you know, so many times we think of God as being slow. But he here Habakkuk is saying, God, you are moving, you are fast, you are, you are doing great things, and the funny thing is, is from our human perspective, once God starts moving, we see Him doing great things quickly, and then there seems to be this long pause where things just don't seem to be happening. And I've said this many times, if we look at the Bible, we think, oh, all these great people, they had nothing but adventure in their life. Look how exciting their life was. Because we just get a few glimpses of their life. And we'll we'll even look at Daniel. You know, Daniel, for his first few years, we know nothing about him, but we know that when he goes to school under Nebuchadnezzar, he's there for about three or four years, and we have one big event in his life, and that's when they're going to be there are two events one when they say we can't eat the king's food and the other one is when they're going to kill all the wise men because nobody could tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was then we don't hear about him for a long time and we go wow look how exciting his life was we need to be very careful of that because there's little snippets of different bits of their life We have a 70-year history of Daniel with about four stories about his life in that 70-year period. Does that mean that God did nothing during those other other years? Probably not nothing, but he didn't do anything significant to be written up in the book. And we need to be careful because sometimes we're looking for God to bring the excitement of Daniel, the excitement of Joseph, the excitement of Abraham into our life but most of their lives were mundane, everyday activities. Get up, eat breakfast, do my work, have lunch, go to dinner, go to bed. (laughs) Get up, have breakfast, You know, and then all of a sudden, God steps in once in a while and says, I wanna do something great in your life today. We need to be looking for God and saying, God, when is this supernatural point in time for me to do something great for you? I think the more we look for it, the more we'll see them. Because it is so easy to ignore God and miss God. And I know there's times when I've missed God and I, I go and I, sh- and I think about what I should have said or should have done an hour after, after it's passed. And it's too late to go back and fix it. And you go, man, I should have done this. That was God putting this in front of me. And there's other times when I'm looking for God and I'm going, okay, all right, God, let's take, let's take advantage of this. Let's take advantage of this whole thing going on. And then in verse six, it says, He stood and measured the earth. I kind of find this very interesting because literally measured means He shook the earth. He didn't just measure it, He shook the earth. And that is what God does at times. When God steps in to our life, things get shook up. When God steps in, we look at it all through the scriptures. God stepped into Joseph's life and he became a slave. God stepped into Moses' life and he became the leader of three and a half million people. And sometimes we don't really think about how big a deal that was. Yes, he had God on his side, God doing supernatural things, but still there were three and a half million people that he was in charge of, that when they didn't get enough food and water, they came to him. When everything didn't get just the way they thought it would be, they went to Him for answers. Mary and Joseph had God step into their life and turn their life upside down. God came into the life of Saul of Tarsus and his life was turned upside down. He went from being a Pharisee on the Sanhedrin to being on the most hated list of the Sanhedrin. Over and over, God steps in and life gets turned upside down. And it's very funny that we as Christians go, God, come in and do what you want with me. But we don't want our life turned upside down. And when our life gets turned upside down, we complain that God did just what we asked him to do. God, come into my life. Help me learn something. Our life gets turned upside down. God, this isn't what I wanted. And God said, well, you wanted me to do something in your life, didn't you? And we need to be able to understand when he comes in, things get shook up. The norm is no longer the norm. God has stepped in. And it says, He drove asunder the nations. He split the nations apart. Now, this is kind of an interesting statement here because what is, when we go back to early history in the Bible, the whole world was in one place pretty much in Babylon. Nimrod built a city, enslaved the people, and was building a tower and God stepped down and said they are one we need to break them up and he gave everybody a multitude of languages and they all scattered across the face of the earth because of those separation what is happening today the nations are being drawn back together into one nation to just as it was back in the days of babylon and god says i'm going to sh- i shook them up before and he's going to shake it up again in, During this next reign of the one nation, the Antichrist will come in and develop his reign to be shaken up when God comes down and Jesus steps on Mount Olivet and rescues Israel and sets up his rule for a thousand years to a perfect rule. But he says he moved the nations, he shook them. And that's kind of interesting. The everlasting mountains were scattered, the perpetual uh, the perpetual hills did bow, his ways are everlasting. This is very interesting because he's looking at two things that are very stable. Mountains stay mountains, at least in any generation that h- humans look at them. All right? I, I do not expect to come driving one day to chloride and find those mountains all around chloride gone. gone. Uh, it would be a major <laughs> catastrophe for the mountains to be gone around chloride, the mountains around Kingman to be all of a sudden gone. And from our perspective, they are everlasting. I mean, they have been here for who knows how long, and they will, we expect them to be here for the foreseeable future. Now, we understand you know, tens or 20,000 years that there's going to be erosion, but we still don't expect these mountains to disappear. Because we have mountains around us. We have hard rock mountains. You know, uh, volcanic rock all around us. And it does not get worn away very easily. But, so we don't expect these to disappear anytime soon. And he's saying the everlasting mountains were scattered. God is going to... Do, and even in, in Revelation we're told that there is going to be an earthquake so severe that the mountains crumble. That is going to be one heck of a earthquake. That is a big shake. That is a huge shake that the mountains disappear. That God does a dramatic tectonic shift of the world and things disappear. And all the mountains will be leveled. And the islands will disappear, it says. Because so, islands technically are just the top of mountains. Uh, and it says all of this will happen. And the perpetual hills did bow before him, laid prostate, and he says, but these things that you think are stable that are going to disappear, God's ways are everlasting, his ways are everlasting, God's ways will not change, even when these stable things that we think are out there that are stable from our perspective are gone, God says, I will still have my everlasting way, my rules my my word my ways will still be out there and this is talking long in the future there is coming a day when the hills will be will be fallen according to revelation and even beyond that at the end of the millennial reign when when the white throne judgment happens god is going to destroy this world that we live in the earth and heavens that we live in and he's going to create a new heaven and earth for us to dwell in, and it says my ways will still be there. God does not change. We need to really get this into our minds. God does not change. He is incapable of change. What he was before creation is who he is now. What he was after creation of the world is who he is now. Many people have this idea that God was somehow different in the Old Testament than he is now. That somehow he did miraculous things when Jesus was around; great miracles happened, and then he changed. God has never changed. Yeah, yep. I see. We see the love of God in the Old Testament. We see His mercy in the Old Testament. We see His His judgment in the New Testament at times. Now, granted, there was more law and more more judgment in the Old Testament than love and mercy, but He's showed it over and over again. And the more we realize what we're looking for, the more we see it. In the New Testament, it is more love and compassion than, than judgment, but we see instances of judgment because God does not change. He is still a holy, righteous God that demands obedience. And so we want to be able to understand that as we go forward, but he says, all these things that you think are stable, are going to pass away. That is going to go away and not be what you think it is. And this is something very important for us. If our trust is in anything but God, it is misplaced. And this is very, very important because it is so easy to put our trust in something else. There are many people, even Christians, that are putting their trust in the government. Now, why they put their trust in the government, I have no idea, but people put their trust and hope in the government. What are we hearing now? Well, nations, governments are not good enough. We need some you know, some great leader to draw everybody together and get rid of our problems. They're calling for the Antichrist without knowing it because he's gonna come as a man of peace. He's gonna look like he's the perfect solution to all the problems and will appear to be for the first couple years. And then Everybody will realize that they've been cheated as things get bad. But this is what's going on. What is our trust in? Many people financially trust in their 401ks and their bank accounts and all of this stuff and not trust in God. And there will be a day when the economy crashes, probably sooner than later. And we know that one of the seal plagues is that the economy falls apart which is one of the things the Antichrist will come in and fix everything for them. But we understand if our trust is in anything but God, it is misplaced. Does that mean we don't uh, make plans and try to invest for the future? No, we should invest for the future. We should make our plans, but our trust is not in our plans. Our trust is not in what I can do to make sure something happens. It is what God can do. And so this is where we're at. Verse 7 says, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. And so here we say we don't know where Kushan is. I looked it up. Nobody knows where Kushan is, some city, some region at that particular time. But the tents were the nomadic tents, and they were in affliction. They were in sorrow. They were troubled. And the curtain over the land of Midian did tremble literally with quake. so what do we see in here we're not absolutely sure some people talk about this again because we see the the leaving of egypt through the pestilence and everything some people believe that it is the fear of the region as israel was being led by god to take over the land i'm not sure what it is but literally it's saying that without god people were in trembling they were in fear and then it was very interesting in verse 8: Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was your anger against the river and your wrath against the sea that you did ride upon horses and on your chariots of salvation? This is kind of interesting. I'm, I'm not fully sure what this is, but it says, Was the Lord angry with the rivers? Was his anger, and this is the word here for anger, is anger that you see in the face. There are certain times when you look at somebody, and you see the flaring of the nostrils, the opinion, this is what that word is. Boy. You're seeing that anger, it is so, there is so much in it, you just see, there's certain times you look at somebody and you go, you just know they're angry. They haven't said a word, but their face says they're angry and that's this word. And was your wrath overflowing rage against the sea? And these are all questions. God, were you angry with the rivers? Were you angry with the rivers? Were you angry with the sea? Uh, And this is kind of an interesting thing, that you did ride upon your horse and your chariot of salvation. It's a very strange statement. Many people do believe that he's talking about the Red Sea and the River Jordan being split. And it is quite possible. You know, God, were you angry with those rivers when you split them? Were you angry with with the sea when you split it? And in both cases, no, he just needed to get his people from one side to the other. And, but it says that you did ride your horses and your chariots of salvation. Why did God split the Red Sea? So he could deliver the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians. And the Egyptians were crazy enough to, to ride their chariots into the, into the sea. You know, and that's after God took the wheels off their chariots as they're riding. You know their wheels were taken off and they're bumping along the ground on their on the on the base of their chariots. If I had been a chariot rider, I think I would have very much turned around and said, "Not enough of this! I'm going back home." But the fear of Pharaoh put them into the Red Sea, and God closed the Red Sea upon them, and covered them. And so this is what most people kind of believe that he's talking about. And then when they entered into the Jordan, uh, into the Promised Land. God did a miracle there for them as well. He stopped the river Jordan from flowing. And it said that it was at flood stage, which means it was overflowing its banks. Jericho thought that they were perfectly safe. They they had months until the river was gonna stop flowing and that the children of Israel could finally cross the river. And all of a sudden, the river stopped flowing and their enemy is sitting right outside their door. And they're going, this is, what can we do? And it's very interesting when you read in Judges about, uh, Joshua about this. They went and they saw, they spied out the city and Rahab told them, we have heard of your God, how he destroyed Egypt, how he split the Red Sea. And now we know how he split the Jordan River. And they go, we are terrified. Most of those activities happened 40 years earlier. And they go, we are afraid of your God because your God has done great things. Now, this is the thing about, when we lift up God before people, they, they look at us and they go, they see hopefully a God that does wonderful things. They see a life change. They see the joy on our face, the love that we show, show forth to people. And this is a very interesting thing that, People should be seeing God's work in our life. And if they're not, something's wrong. We need to be lifting up God. Verse 9. Your bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes, even their word, Selah. You did cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you, and they trembled. The overflowing of the river passed by. The deep uttered his voice, And lifted up his hands on high, the sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went, and at the shining, at at the shining of your glittering spear, you did march through the land in indignation. You did thresh the heathen in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, even the salvation with your anointed. You you wounded the head of the house of the wicked. By discovering the fountains unto the neck. Selah. So here he says, Your bow bow was made quite naked. They pulled out. And this word for naked is kind of an interesting one. It literally in Hebrew says, Your bow was naked, bared. (laughs) Uh, So he took out his bow. And if you know anything about a bow, you usually will keep a bow in some kind of sheaf to protect the string and the wood. And he says, you've pulled out your bow, you've unsheathed your bow, you're ready to use it, is what he's saying here. Your bow is ready to be used. And you know, he says, according to the oaths of the tribes, and we're going to take out the according because according is in italics if you have the King James Bible, which means it's there added there it's not in the original language so if we take that out to the oaths of the tribes not according to but to the oaths the people have been making oaths against God's desires and God says I am going to bring judgment your even your word or your or, or word and God is saying my word do we fully understand the power of God's word By his word, the heavens and earth were created. Jesus in in John 1 has said that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and and without the word was nothing made. The word was Jesus. The word was spoken, and the heavens and the earth were created in all the perfectness that we have. At God's word, people were healed. At God's word, miraculous things happened. And here he's saying, his word, his word is, is coming up. And at his word, we see that the, he says, you did cleave the earth with rivers. You know, and this is another thing, you know, we think about the earth being so hard to move around. And in our day, we find it easier to move around because we've got some heavy, heavy machinery that can do it. But think about how much work goes in to making the earth move. Even if we want to shovel a ditch, it goes. It takes a long time. It takes or specialized piece of equipment to do it. You know, with any speed. And he says, God, you have taken the rivers, and they cut the earth in pieces, and they make great valleys. They make great cuts in the earth to, with the rivers. And it says, the mountain saw you. And they trembled. This is kind of an interesting statement. Almost the idea that if God shows up, the earth is going to react. And this is very interesting because Jesus came as a human being. God became man and he veiled his deity in humanity and it keeps talking about God being veiled all through this section, but he, when he came to this world, he veiled his deity in humanity. He became the God-man. And that's hard for us to understand. The Bible indicates he's 100% God and he's 100% man. doesn't work by our mathematics. You know, you could be 50% God and 50% man by our mathematics, but God says, no, I am fully God and I am fully man." So we don't understand that and cannot understand it. But he says the mountains trembled, the overflowing water, and this is literally overflowing means a thunderstorm, a downpour, a storm. A storm passed by. How many times have we looked at the clouds? We know that it's raining someplace and it passes right over us and we don't ever see the storm. This is what he's referring to. A huge downpour passed by and didn't do anything. It went, went over and past us. And he says, the deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. The deep, the idea that something from the deep, the, some people even go so far as to translate this, the abyss, hell, lifted up its hands and worshiped God. Do we realize that hell is a created thing of God? It's a prison for Satan and his demons and fallen man is going to be put there as well, but it was never created for man. It is an eternal punishment. But even there it says hell itself is under God's control. And I've said this many times, Satan is not the king of hell, he is a prisoner of hell. when we're told in Revelation that he stands before God's throne, people are going to look at him and say, This is the one that made the nations tremble. That yeah. type of person isn't going to rule hell. I always thought like he was the king of hell. Nope. He's temporarily the God of this world. Yeah. But he is, when you really think about it, he's the Wizard of Oz standing behind the curtain, you know, with a. Flamboyant display of how powerful he is, but he's that little, you know, powerless guy behind the curtain. And this is what's going to be happening when he stands before the throne of in heaven. People are going to look at him and say, "That's him. That's him. That's the one that caused us so much problems. That's the one we were afraid of." Not the one that got me in trouble. Well, he's the one that led you into trouble, not got you into trouble. Mainly led you into trouble. But that's going to be the point. Hell is a prison, and he's not going to be able to rule hell because of when people look at him, they're going to go, he is not as powerful as we thought. He is not God's equal. He is a created being by God that God puts on a chain and allows to use him to test his people and test the world. And when he gets done with him, he's going to be revealed for what he is a wimpy and probably strong as far as it goes but he's going to be looked and you know and when they're looking at him it's in comparison to God and his angels and they're gonna go we really got suckered into this one we thought he was so great and so wonderful but looking at God we see how weak he is and this is where we will be with God I imagine when we get to heaven our greatest glory that we're gonna have is be looking at God and saying, God, I don't belong here. It's your mercy and your grace that allow me to be here because of what Jesus did. And we're going to be in awe that God accepts us. You know, I'm in awe already that God accepts us. But just think, when we get to heaven and we realize we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and if it wasn't for that, we would not be accepted. And all we did was accept his gift for us. What a beautiful thing this will be. I can imagine spending thousands of years just looking at Jesus. Not wanting to do anything else, just saying, I am here because He took my punishment. He bears the scars of our iniquity upon His body. You just come to God and then you have eternal life. It's so easy that most people won't do it, and that's the problem. People won't turn to God, and many times I've heard, well, that's just too easy. Yeah, it's so easy that you won't do it. It's so easy that you will not do it. So for you, it is very hard, and for those who are lost, they're looking at something that's the easiest thing in the world to do and making it the hardest thing to do. Why? Because they have to humble themselves and admit that they cannot do anything to deserve it. And this is hard. This is why Satan and the demons will not ever get saved because they will not, or cannot at this point, repent. They just, it's not something that God is going to allow. And God is saying to them, You need to. He says to people, You need to repent. You need to worship me. You need to come before me and bow humbly. Pride is the destruction of people. It was the destruction of Satan. He goes, I will ascend to the throne of heaven. I will be like the most high. He didn't say he was going to be greater than God. He wanted to be equal to God. He wanted to be like God. He was the chief angel and that was not enough for him. He wanted to be equal to God. His pride brought him down. And a third of the angels fell with him. What was the thing that they did to Adam and Eve? He tempted Eve by saying, if you eat of this fruit, God knows. He's trying to hold you down. He knows that if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And pride was her downfall. Pride was the downfall of Satan. and Pride has been the downfall of humanity ever since. God says, bow my knee and humbly take his gift. And we're going, absolutely not. I am God of my own world. I am not bowing my knee. And God says, well, if that's the case, then you will end up in hell. And all it is is take a moment to bow. I remember talking, it's been happening more than once, but even recently I talked to somebody and they're going, there is no way I will bow my knee to God. I don't bow my knee to anybody. And I felt so sad for that person. I still feel sad for that person, that you won't bow your knee to God. Why do people have so much trouble with the idea of God? Those who think they're atheists or don't want to believe in God, their biggest problem is, if there is a God that started and created everything, then that God has every right to demand worship, every right to demand obedience from us, and they don't want to do that. It is hard for them to say, well, I'm going to repent. I'm going to bow my knee to God because that means I have to humble myself and not and accept what God has and not stand on my own two feet. One of the problems with so many Americans is we have this self-determined, I, everything I do, I do on my own strength. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. And you talk to people at times and you're listening to what they say and you're going, if it wasn't for God you would have nothing to pull up in the first place. It wasn't you that did it, it was God that allowed it to happen. And learning to trust God and to follow God is so important that we understand it is Him that does everything. Verse 11 says, The sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went and at the shining of your glittering spear. And this is kind of an interesting, this could be a reference to Joshua when he stopped stopped the sun from moving for 24 hours. I'm not so sure, but many people do think it, and it's marked in my Bible that it's a reference to Joshua. I have a feeling that it is actually at creation. There was no sun and moon until God said to be created, and then he told them how to move. You know, it could be either one. It could be both, uh, and I'm not going to argue. If people want to go the do that, I have no problem with it. But it says, "At the light of your arrows they went, and at the shining they, of your glittering spear they moved." And I think this is just the power of God at creation. My personal opinion is worth nothing. Uh, most of the most everything I looked at, you know, when I did look at some things, basically said Joshua. And I'm not going to argue with those smart guys. They probably know better than I do. But I do think it's talking about God's creation. Uh, not just Joshua. So uh, you did march through the land in indignation. You did thresh the heathen in anger. So he goes, God, you marched around in indignation, anger, And in anger, and you threshed. You know, threshing floor was where they took the grain and shook it out, they threw it up in the air so that all the chaff could be blown away by it, and they kept doing this, and this is what he's saying God did to the heathen. God, you are going to get the heathen fully controlled. And I think this is prophetic. Uh, God has done it in the past for Israel. He's destroyed the enemies. He will destroy the enemy and will do it over and over again. God takes the heathen and destroys And saves his people. Uh, You went forth for the salvation of your people. Even the salvation with your anointed. You wounded the head out of the house of the wicked. By discovering the foundations upon the neck. So here he says you went forth. You went forth. God did this for the salvation of your people. God moves for his people. He did it all through the years for Israel. He's done it for the church. He's going to do it for Israel at the end days. He's going to go forth and rescue Israel and bring them to salvation. And it says, even for salvation with your anointed, and this word is literally Messiah. Talking about Jesus. Jesus is the way to salvation. It says, you wounded the head of the house of the wicked by discovering or laying bare the foundation unto the neck. This is kind of an interesting thing. Basically, he's saying that the head was wounded all the way down to the, to the shoulders, right down to the neck. And we think about this. If it wasn't for the head of the house of the wicked, I would... You know, I would, I would be saying this is all about Jesus. But Jesus did die for the wicked. He became sin on the cross. They, Isaiah tells us that they pulled his beard out so that he bled would be bleeding from the pulling out of his beard. They put a crown of thorns on Jesus so that he bled. They beat his face. When they covered it with a the bag, they beat his face. And then asked him to prophesy. Tell us, tell us who's hitting you. They made his head totally bruised and and bloodied to a pulp. And I think this is what this is referring to at this point. Because he became sin. We don't fully understand what this means. The perfect God, the one that had never sinned in his entire existence and his entire time as a human being. Thirty-four years had never sinned, had never sinned in all of eternity, became sin on the cross and paid the price of our sin for us. That to me is something that I have a hard time really understanding. God, how could you love us so much to go through that much? You loved us to such a degree that you became sin. And the Father and the Spirit had to turn their back on Jesus. The one and only time in all of history that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were separated from each other. For all of eternity past, they had been in perfect unity. And God created man knowing that man was going to fall, knowing that there was going to come a time when Jesus was going to offer himself and become sin and have to be separated from the Father and the Spirit, and yet he chose to do it. I can't even believe that God created us in the first place. But Jesus chose to die for us with the greatest pain that was going to be involved. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was separated for the first time in all of eternity from the Father and the Spirit. He hung on the cross alone for our sin. Totally isolated as he had never been in all of his existence. And he did it because of his love for humanity. That is hard to understand. It is humbling to think of that Jesus died for us when we didn't deserve it, and he paid such a price for it. And in his death, he hung on that cross and died to pay for the sins of the world. And God raised him back to life. So that he could be the firstborn of the resurrection. He did not have to die again. All the other previous resurrections that had happened. Lazarus, the widow's, the widow's son on more than one occasion. Everybody who had been raised from the dead. In the, all through the scriptures. All had to die a second time. Jesus did not die a second time. He ascended into heaven. And we have the promise as his children that we will be resurrected and restored to a body, whatever that body is, for eternity at the next resurrection when he calls his children home. What a beautiful picture we have of the power of God. He is the firstborn of the resurrection, the preeminent one. He came to this world to live a perfect life so that we could be forgiven because he knew that we could not live a perfect life because sin brought death. He was born of a virgin so that he did not have a sin nature. He was not born dead like any other human being. He walked with the Father with the Spirit for his entire life and the only time he was ever separated from them was on the cross when he became sin for three hours when God put darkness upon the face of the earth God said, I'm not looking at him, and you're not looking at him. He is sin, and he's not going to be seen. The price that was paid for our sin was extreme. And we need to fully understand and pick that up, because so many Christians do not understand the price that was paid for our sin. Yes, they know that Jesus died, but they don't fully grasp the beating he took, the, the lashes he took with the, the flagellum, the, the hard walk he had to make to the cross, the actual crucifixion, all of that was child's play compared to me and cut off from the Father. Something that had never happened in all of eternity, he was cut off from the Father. The strength that he had, the love that he had, and he was alone by himself as he became sin. And even then, he had no personal sin during that period of time. He became sin for us because he was perfect. He was a lamb that could do it. And he suffered for us. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we thank you that you went to the cross, that you took the punishment that we deserve, that you are all powerful, and yet you died for us. And we thank you that you cared enough to pay the price that we could not pay. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and that's a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening, and have a wonderful day.